This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Elk Shape Podcast number 17 with me, Dan Staten. Today we're bringing on an elk hunting legend you probably never heard of. And that's what this podcast is all about, sifting and digging and hunting down these elk hunting legends that have had more years in the field than most of us have been alive today is just like that. And if you've never listened to this podcast, it's basically for blue-collar people that want to hunt archery, elk, over-the-counter, or any type of elk hunting, really. But mainly, we're not about private land or landowner tags. We're about the guys that go buy their tags at Walmart and go hunt National Forest and try to get it done and balancing work and family and life. Uh, also, we're about the off-season, you know, discipline is freedom like Jocko Willick says and what that means for us is that we're disciplined in our training and our nutrition and our shooting regimen our finances so that we can enjoy stress-free time in the mountains come fall and basically delayed gratification where we have our eye on the prize and the prize is getting your hands around that elk once it's on the ground and earning everything that you get in life through hard work because hard work pays off. I'm excited about bringing our guest on today. I've known him for quite a few years, but I've never hunted with him. And I've known his hunting prowess, his pedigree, his experience, and he's super humble. So it's tough to pull information out of him, but I think this is my favorite podcast I've recorded to date. This guy's name is Mike Lowry. He, he's lived in Montana for the last 30 years, but he's lived all over. He's been hunting elk since the 70s. And he's only hunted elk with a bow. So he's lived through many elk hunting seasons. And he's been through the evolution of archery as it started out with just compounds just coming out when he started archery elk hunting. And he's hunted with some legends. He's shot for many bow manufacturers throughout the years. And like I said, he's probably forgot more than I'll ever know on elk hunting. So it's a super big treat to have him on. If you want to support the podcast, check out elkshape.com. We're adding t-shirts next week. We have some pretty good lids, some decals. I have an elk shape training program, 21 Days to Elk Shape. You can get my ebook. But 
please, yeah, if you want to support us, that's how you can do it and share this with your friends. Let them know that, hey, there's a podcast out there that's not a bunch of hype. It's just straight to business and it's inspirational, it's motivational, it's educational, it's entertaining, and everybody associated is all about hard work and getting the job done on public land. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. We are recording. So this is Elk Shape Podcast, episode 17, with me, Dan Staten, today, bringing on somebody you probably haven't ever heard of, but you should have, uh, elk hunting legend out of Montana, Mike Lowry. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing great. Awesome. I appreciate you coming on, man. It was kind of a challenge getting this whole internet phone call thing going, but we did it. (laughs) Yeah, that just shows you what uh, age group we're operating in. Well, how old are you? I'll be 70 in May. No kidding. How long have you been elk hunting? Oh, let's see now. I think I killed my first elk about 75. Oh, okay. So, forty plus years you've been elk hunting. You forgot more about elk hunting than I'll ever know. We're gonna pick your brain today if you're okay with that. Sure, we'll shoot and we'll see what we can help you with. Well, give me a little bit of your background, how you got your start into elk hunting, and just give us some background info on you. Well, I was born in Idaho, raised all over the world, ended up. Uh, I guess when I started elk hunting, I was living in Nevada. And uh, no, that's not true. Got to get the memory right. I was in Utah at the time and uh, got invited to go on an elk hunt with a guy named Jim Pickering and Irv Ambler. Uh, Jim was in the Archery Hall of Fame now, and both of those guys passed away since then. So we ended up going over. Uh, yeah, Jim Pickering. He's uh, yep. I've heard of that guy. Yeah, he was a great, uh, great guy. Really good for archery. Super good uh, finger shooter. And uh, at that time, nobody was using releases. We were all using fingers. And uh, it was about the time that compound bows first started coming into being popular. And so we went over to the White Tops. Uh, or the flat tops over by White River in uh, Colorado, and uh, that's where I got my first elk. Got a nice little Pulpin Young six point over there. It was a pretty good start. Oh my gosh! So right out the gates, you had success. What did you shoot that elk with? That time it was a, a PSE Citation, I believe. And uh, in fact, uh, I uh, well. Yeah, but probably it was probably a citation because I started shooting the compound. I started out with a mid-range compound, and then I quickly found out that I needed to have the best one they had, and so I traded up. All right. So, what arrows were you using back in the '70s? No, that was like the Eastern Game Getters and uh, old aluminum arrows, and. Uh, and we were probably shooting at that time. Oh, I remember it was a Razorback 5 broadhead. <laughs> okay. And you're shooting like 180 feet a second with that bow? Maybe. <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember when we broke 200 feet, we thought we were smoking pretty hard there. That's awesome. 
So how did your elk hunting career, obviously you're hooked, you shoot a Pope and Young six point your very first time out. How did, I mean, obviously that changed you. Tell us about your journey from there. Well, obviously it did hook us, uh, me and everybody else that I was associated with. Nobody was killing elk in those days with bow and arrow. It was a big deal. And uh, so we just, we started playing around with calling them and we were using the old whistle and uh, and uh, you'd get a three-tone note or something like that. And uh, and but they all could answer it, so uh, it, it excited us. And uh, after getting that first elk, then you had to try and get one every year. It seemed like, and uh, and I was pretty lucky. I ended up uh, probably going like five years in a row, being successful. And uh, between Utah and Colorado and Idaho and. Uh, I just seemed to kind of fall into a passion for it. And so it was like everything else that you're passionate about. You live, eat, and breathe it. And that's pretty much what I did year-round. Was there a special archery season in the 70s, or was it just kind of any weapon and you chose archery, or how did that work? Actually, living in Utah, I uh, I loved the shoot a bow and arrow. I started when I was just a little kid and I always was kind of a passion shooting a bow, but everybody was rifle hunting then. And I just got so sick of having to go find your own rock. And, uh, it just seemed like everybody in, in that lived in Utah was out hunting during the rifle hunt. So I gravitated more towards the bow hunting end of it. And then I started hanging around some people that were really successful in it. And it just seemed to be uh, the fix I needed, I guess. And uh, so I started uh, uh, shooting my bow constantly. And, uh, and to me, you shot a bow to go hunting. And, uh, and so that's what I did. And there was uh, an archery season in those days. Uh, but you really, like in Utah, you had to draw a tag. Uh, you were lucky if you could even draw one. That's why I go out of state where I could buy a tag. Okay, okay. So that part hasn't changed too much. You still had to draw a tag. And uh, so you started hunting elk all out west. Um, was there a state that kind of soon became your favorite place to go? Idaho. Really? Yeah. And uh, the uh, I'm from Idaho originally. That's where I was born. And uh, But... It was close, and I could get a tag, like we were saying there. And so uh, I found a couple of good spots uh, that I could go to through friends of mine and uh, then kind of just made it my own. And oh, right that on. Was, that was just where the, you know, the passion began, I guess. Well, so what part of Idaho did you start cutting your teeth on elk? More in the southeast corner, um, over in the... Probably the best place that I went to the most uh, would be closer to uh, a little town called uh, Wayan, which is right across from uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And, uh, okay. And in that country there, up in the Palisades, uh, Rainy Creek area, some of those spots. And uh, there wasn't a lot of competition back then, uh, like there is now. 
So in your heyday, what was it like locating elk and what was it like and did you have to go real deep and how did you set your camps up? Kind of give us a, the backdrop on what elk camp looked like for you, archery in the 70s or whatever in uh, eastern Idaho. Well, we would drive in as far as we could go next to the wilderness area there, or at least the roadless area, and we'd set a base camp, and then we'd either have, sometimes we'd have a couple horses around that we could uh, do a drop camp in on, or we would take and just hike back in and uh, kind of get away from the road, and you'd do some calling, and uh, you'd get answers. Uh, the elk were very responsive in those days, and so uh, then we learned to call, and, uh, and that could be a whole story in itself, And uh, because I became a voice caller, and still am. Oh. Yeah. And so... So you are a voice caller. Yeah. And uh, it's been good to me, and I know that... Uh, uh, there's a lot of good calls out there, and uh, and everybody seems to have become an expert on it, and so it uh, it's both good and bad. And if you get into an area where the elk haven't been a lot of pressure, it's good. But if you're in an area where they have been hunted and stuff, sometimes it's bad. So then you have to adjust. I didn't have as much, and still don't have as much problem. Um, even in heavily hunted areas, using my voice. Um, can I put you on the spot and have you give us a sample? <laughs> that might be kind of tough on the phone. <laughs> it, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, we just, there was a guy named Lauren Butler that stopped into, uh, you, you probably know, well, I don't know if you know the Salt Lake area that much, uh, into uh, Consolidated Field Sports, which was a local taxidermy slash pro shop. And he was selling a little thing called a grunt tube. And it was just, looked like a little piece of vacuum tube that he would, uh, he would call into and he'd do a, 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 an elk grunt um, by sucking in. And he'd go, <coughs> and, uh, and, well, I'd heard that before out in elk hunting, and so I immediately recognized that. And it was all just a case of, learning to train your voice to make noise sucking in instead of out. And uh, you go with an e oak, and then it kind of goes, <laughs> That sounds good, man. And uh, anyway, then we went from there. And so what you do is you just, uh, like I tell people, you just eliminate everything that doesn't sound like an elf, and then you got it. So <laughs> it's uh, just a sheer uh, imitation of uh, of doing that and carrying it on into a, a full-blown bugle. Wow. So well, my podcast is dedicated to the guys that are stuck in that learning curve. And it, obviously, it didn't sound sure. like you experienced that. You were pretty much had some awesome success for five years right out the gates. Myself, personally, it took me quite a few seasons to get my first elk and kind of get the hangs and things. But if you were mentoring some of the listeners that haven't killed an elk yet, what are some of the most common mistakes that you could help them avoid? Well, I made plenty of mistakes along the route, too. And I think that's the biggest thing is learn from your mistakes and so you don't repeat them. 
the yeah. the very first thing, of course, is learning to recognize what elk habitat is and learning to read the country, especially if you're going into a new spot. Um, you can pick out uh, benches and draws where after a while you come to learn that these are the kind of areas that the elk like to habitat. And, and, uh, and so then, you, you know, it's always better to fish in a spot where there's fish, so to speak. Uh, and uh, so you learn yes. that, number one, and that doesn't have to be way back in where nobody else goes. A lot of good areas are areas that people go by to get to the good spot. And uh, so it, it's recognition there. And the biggest mistake a lot of people make, I think the two that I would pick out to start with is, number one is they think they can fool the wind, and you can't. And uh, you can do things to help and, uh, and everything, but in the end, if the wind gives you up, then you're probably done. Uh, the other thing is, and I think that I see the most is I have a lot of people that have gotten elk within bow range, but they try to draw their bow at the wrong time. And they either get stuck, you know, busted, uh, uh, because elk have tremendous uh, peripheral vision. And they seem to think that the elk isn't paying any attention. He might be googling and walking broadside uh, past them or coming, you know, a little towards them, quartering towards them or something like that. And they think they can get away with uh, drawing their bow or a little movement, and you're probably going to get busted nine out of ten times doing that. So I'd say pick your spot when you're doing a setup and figure out the areas where you actually can can get your bow back. And when you think that uh, you're going to be able to make a shot, my theory's always been. Take the first good shot you know you can make. And, uh, and so movement uh, is critical. You can get away with a lot of noise with elk because they make a lot of noise. And uh, in fact, sometimes if I'm trying to call one in, I will on purpose break limbs or, or drag a limb across the branch, do something that sounds like something that they're familiar with and what they're looking for. That's really solid, solid advice. I think either you pull your bow back too early and then you hit fatigue and you're not going to be as accurate. Or like you said, most times guys don't pull their bow back soon enough and then you're stuck looking at a bull that's looking at you and your window of opportunity is about to vanish. Um, where, when all the places you've elk hunted, what is one of the best states do you think for just opportunity for just guys that want to get some experience elk hunting and want to find to get into some elk? What do you recommend? Well, Colorado has, you know, just yearly been the state with the biggest number of elk, and uh, and so there's still a lot of good places in Colorado uh, that you could go to. Um, some of the other ones that uh, Idaho is still really good, uh, that has a, a large number of elk. And it just takes your homework. Uh, in actuality, you're bowling elk uh, 
passion should be something you do all year. In the winter time, you can study, and uh, now you have so much access to research uh, on the internet and uh, and publications and things like that, and and learn where is a good area to go start. And that that's the main thing right there. Get your get your homework done when you can't be out there hunting, and then the rest of the year. My year consists of as soon as I can, I'm in the woods. And by July, uh, my, you know, interests have turned from everything else into scouting for where the elk are. Now, living here in Montana, it helps a bunch because I live uh, most any day. I can look across the road from my house and see some elk. So it's not like they're a long ways away. But say you live in a population center and now you're planning a hunt and you got you want to go somewhere and, and you want to at least experience opportunity, uh, that's where your homework goes. And you got to look at what you can afford, number one. And, uh, and, and I used to save up all year so that I could buy an out-of-state tag and go to somewhere where I had a better opportunity because I couldn't draw a tag where I was. That makes sense. Yep, I think that's still part of my protocol. Um, and then fast forwarding to the last you know, 40 years and currently, can you kind of look from a big view and see how not only elk hunting has changed, but maybe how it stayed the same as well? Well, still, I guess the things that have stayed the same is uh, the elk uh, still react the same for me. Uh, I've had people say you can't call them, but I, I shot my elk at eight yards last year and, uh, and called him right in. Uh, you just got to get smarter about how you're doing it. Um, a lot of that comes just by experience, and uh, there's a lot of good tapes out there and videos that people that have experience that, uh, it, you know, uh, I want to share, I guess uh, the elk have become more call shy because they've been hunted more and they've listened to more people call them and they've become educated. And, uh, and so uh, you have to kind of use some common sense there. Kind of a rule of thumb is if you're doing something that's working, don't change it. Sometimes a, a guy will get, get an elk started and he, he's having pretty good success and then he'll uh, he'll switch and start maybe from maybe located with a bugle and he's responding and then he gives a cow call and uh, I've seen areas where you give a cow call and, and the elk will come to you but I've seen other areas where you give a cow call and they're immediately gone so it kind of depends on the pressure that they're having in the area as far as that's kind of the new stuff a little bit uh, that has changed them. Um, one of the other things is that there's an increased number of people out there doing what we used to do and uh, when we first started and uh, you hardly ever ran into anybody. There's a lot more outfitting. Uh, I've been back in wilderness areas in Colorado and other places and uh, in Nevada, here in Montana, and have called in uh, 
outfitters as a client before, and uh, I've done that several times. And so your competition is becoming greater. And but there's still lots of opportunity. I don't want to. I don't want to sound like it's impossible to find anywhere because I kill elk right here within 50 miles of my house. So, uh, and I'm living in Helena, Montana right now, and so have for the last 30 years. But um, so I'm pretty lucky that way, and I realize what it's like though. Like when I was living in Las Vegas, Nevada, in a big population center, and and man, all you did was just anticipate all year for that week or two you got to go out. And yeah, there's Montana's got a hell of a season. So we've talked about that on here before. Pretty generous seasons for your general tag. What's you know looking back and kind of you've you know looking at how the the actual hunting industry has changed and um. What's your take on, you know, magazines aren't as cool. There's this thing called YouTube and social media and all that kind of nonsense. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What's your perspective? I think there's good people out there, uh, obviously. Uh, there always is. And there's always room uh, for progress. And uh, But there's also, I think, been a lot of... Uh, people that because they can form a television show all of a sudden they're an expert and uh and a lot of (laughs) a lot of that uh a lot of that uh, people are good and uh and they're capable and all that and but a lot of it also is people that can just afford to go to the outfitted spot or private area or whatever that they have a greater chance at I think it kind of gives a diluted um, sort of impression of, of what elk hunting is if you're just the guy that's going out there and hunting on national forests and uh, trying to do it on his own. That's our audience here is uh, the blue-collar guys. They get a very few select days to go, and they're going to go public. They don't – me personally, I'm not even attracted to the thought of having private property access or – somebody guiding or outfitting me that is and there's and i there's a a place for people to do that and that's cool but on this podcast our audience is is those blue collar guys that are just probably trying to raise a family trying to pay some bills but trying to you know carve out some time to do what they love and that's elk hunting on public land and you and i both know it's i don't even know maybe 10 to 100 times more rewarding to do it on your own and say, look back and say, hey, I did this. And anyone else could have done that. Anyone else could have got that same tag over the counter. And it's, uh, I love hearing you say that, Mike. That's pretty neat. And I hope that never goes away. Do you think the hunting in itself is on the decline? Or do you feel like that next generation is coming up and they're being mentored properly? Like, how can we preserve our heritage? I think it's more... Um actually threatened uh, would be, I guess, the word I'd like to use on that uh, in the sense of um, the do-it-yourself type of hunter, um, get out there, you're hunting and uh, you're doing all you can, Um, like you say, blue collar, the guy that saves up his money all year and and just wants to have that that experience guy, um, as opposed to 
uh, I see too much of. Uh, uh, do I uh, have you got him in the? In, have you got it? Have you got it? You know, this cameraman looking over your shoulder type of thing, and the person is upset if they don't get the perfect um, kill shot on video. Uh, that's not what it's about, you know. Um, I think there's a tendency today uh, that they need to be real careful with in the, the aspect of, oh, I can't shoot that one because he has, uh, you know, a G2 that's shorter than the G2 on the other side or, or something like that. Uh, I think we need to get back to the thrill of the hunt. Uh, and uh, I've had the... Uh, I've had the opportunity to kill some really good elk. My biggest one is in the 380. Uh, uh, But some of my most favorite hunts were on maybe, I can think of a five point. I called in and let him go, and I called him back and let him go about four or five times, and it was just so much fun, (laughs) uh, and he was so worked up. Uh, Finally, the last time he came in, I shot him, and... You know, I could. I was hunting in a good area that had bigger elk and all that, uh, but it was a great experience, and um, I just was enjoying the moment and uh, took advantage of it. That's still one of my favorite hunts. Yep, I definitely uh, like what you're saying. I know this year for me, this last season, I got a bull down in September, which is a huge relief for me because my wife loves elk meat. That's what we live off. We so got to get an elk every year like that is a must and i know that's maybe doesn't sound great but that's truth and then i bought my second tag in idaho and mike i just hunted the whole rest of the season for the experience i had one bull i was after and i almost got him several times but walked away with tag in pocket but what i had was all these experiences and i got my money's worth you know what i mean absolutely i i mean i raised our whole family we had a big family we have seven children and uh and we raised our kids on elk and deer meat and wild fishing and game you know like that and uh, uh that was 90 percent of our diet so you felt like you were justifying uh, what you were doing anyway that way um, but obviously the passion was in the hunt and uh and sometimes uh uh you're opportunity was there and i've had years where i got picky you know i thought oh and i'm getting pretty good at this i guess i'm i'm gonna hold out and so i found out that holding out a lot of time you were eating tags too (laughs) so it uh (laughs) you can end up um you know getting that satisfaction you're talking about that doesn't mean it wasn't a good hunt uh but for us we, I'm just a working guy, and uh, don't make a lot of money, never have, uh, but I've sure enjoyed uh, the opportunity. So I get out there and, like you say, go out and hunt and enjoy that experience. And if all you're getting out of that hunt is to make it successful, is whether or not you got an animal, you're doing it wrong. You should be able to enjoy every aspect of it. And learn each time. And you get better at it. There's no doubt about it. Definitely. So you basically kind of got your start when compounds were real new to the scene. What bow are you shooting today? And kind of take us through. This is so special for me, Mike, to talk to somebody. I don't know a lot of guys that have hunted archery exclusively 
throughout this many years, this many decades. And so I'm really curious to hear about your bow evolution um, along the way. Well, I started out shooting a bear uh, Kodiak Magnum Reeker, and uh, and I was kind of like, uh, what is that contraption that has wheels on it? And uh, I can remember when <laughs> when the first bows were the Allen compounds, you know, and they were just coming out. And it was a solid fiberglass limb and a bracketed wheel on the end of that, and uh, and if Next thing, it evolved to uh, bracketed bows where they have a had the bracket held the wheel on the end, but then they had uh, a four-wheel compound, um, and then they came out with forked limbs where your wheel was set in the end of the limb, um, and uh, and it and it worked on up. You know, you were shooting probably 25% let off maybe, and uh, then for a long time it was like 30, 35% let off. Finally, it made the big jump up to 50% let off, and uh, and that and we started getting into uh, that 200 feet per second range that you were talking about there. Um, then it went from that to uh, the four wheel compounds like the Citation that I was shooting, and uh, you might be up in the 180s to 190 if you or you know. I can remember shooting bows at 86 pounds, and uh, that was just my everyday shooting bow. Um, and you had 30 some percent let off, and uh, and you know, and you thought you were at the top of the design at that time, and that'd be a two-wheel compound. I think that was a PSE Mach One um, that first broke 200 feet per second, and uh, and I, originally there I shot uh, PSEs, and I shot four PSE on their advisory staff about 17, 18 years, and when they were uh, number one in the game. And um, now I'm, uh, I've shot for Browning, I've shot for Matthews, uh, and uh, I've shot, oh, it seems like somebody's been giving me my equipment all my life, uh, my bow hunting life which has certainly fueled the passion, and, uh, and I wish everybody had that opportunity. I shoot a uh, Matthews no-cam. Uh, I love that bow. Uh, to me, uh, it's, it's not the fastest bow. It's plenty fast enough to do the job, and uh, I shoot a heavy arrow, and uh, I, like to, I still like to shoot a heavy arrow that's up around 500 grains. And uh, it, uh, I've got in my mind that there's a, what I call the, the right rock theory. And uh, that's like to try and explain that if you're down on the um, river bank and you're picking up rocks and throwing them, you can pick up a great big heavy rock and throw it and that'll hurt your arm. Or you can pick up a real light rock and throw it hard and that'll hurt your arm. But somewhere in there, there's the one that you throw, and it just feels good, you know. And uh, to me, on bows over the years, I, I've shot the light arrows and tried them out and stuff. Uh, but a heavier arrow um, is kind of like the kinetic energy uh, in it, uh, penetration-wise. Um, it seems to, to work best for me. And I think I get better penetration. 
I think the bow's quieter, which is to me a well, you know, a good shooting bow that you can aim well, and it can be quiet uh, and a good broadhead on the end of it. Those are things I look for, and uh, so I pick one that that aims really well for me. Um, I I tell people all the time uh, they ask me what bow to shoot. I tell them shoot the one to shoot the best, and uh, and that doesn't have to be the most expensive bow. Uh, a good pro shop will have you know different brands and stuff. You can uh, you can try go down and. And the one you shoot the best, don't get caught up into the popularity contest or the speed game. Shoot that one and shoot the best because in a, a critical moment uh, where there's some high stress maybe or, you know, uh, your adrenaline rates are going up and stuff like that, it'll pay off in dividends. Wow, that's really good information i like the heavier arrow talk and a good sharp broadhead yeah man shoot what works for you so we're going to switch gears mike because um i know you've killed a lot of elk and i don't know if you want to mention how many but i'd love to know but you've had a lot of elk on the ground let's go over your best practices for meat care and hauling elk out and every and maybe little tricks that you probably don't even think is a trick but would help us guys out on learning to get elk out of the mountains I've hunted in areas where it's really warm and during the bow season, uh, and I probably learned the most there because everything I learned there on taking care of your meat applies to an area whether it's cold or not. Uh, I've seen elk spoil in the snowbank um, because someone didn't get to hide off of it and uh, or thought that because it's really cold out, you can... Uh, leave it till morning and then get it, uh, things like that. Number one, I guess, is learning to uh, follow up on your shot. Um, don't take an iffy shot. If you just don't feel like you can make that shot, don't take that shot. Uh, honestly, you'll feel a whole lot worse if you take an iffy shot and the animal is just wounded and you lose it than if you didn't get the shot. So I think that discipline is really important. But now that uh, you know you've made your shot, I think the, uh, learning the track is a big time important uh, follow up on your shot. Uh, I've made really good shots on animals that didn't leave much of a blood trail, so you had to learn how to follow them. And you could do a, a series of podcasts on that, but. Uh, <laughs> The uh, once you found your animal, you know, yeah, take good pictures because those are memories you're going to have throughout your life. Now everybody can take a picture on their phone. Used to be you had to carry a camera with you and and stuff, and uh, but now it's there. So use that to your advantage. Uh, Clean your shot up uh, uh, so that you're not showing them a bunch of blood and it's tasteful. And then when somebody looks at it, that doesn't understand bow hunting or the kills by hemorrhage or anything like that uh, isn't put off by uh, all the blood and uh, so make good pictures and uh, and you'll like that for your memory but then you got to get to work and uh, and get that animal uh, broke down it's so important to get the hide off of it elk are big animals and especially up in the shoulder and the neck area the hide is so thick 
up there on a bull, especially uh, because I'm sure that's from you know protection for when they're fighting and and uh, and building up their neck muscles like they do in the rut and stuff. But you got to get the hide off of it and get it separated and hung. If, uh, even in warm weather, if you can get your you got to learn how to take your elk apart, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, you get that thing separated and hung. So I always carry some parachute cord in my pack and things to hang it with. And just hang it in the shade. Even, uh, like I say, if it's warm weather, just getting it apart will uh, cool it out so fast that you, you really can't believe that it, it's cooling that well. And... Uh, but it will. Um, I've learned to, to, to bone meat. If I'm back in an area where I'm not, let me tell you, I don't like packing out extra weight, especially anymore. But I, I never understood why I needed to bring home all those bones so I could throw them away at home. And uh, so I learned to take the meat off the bone. And, uh, but a lot of the time, you know, you're taking it off and you're, you're cutting the leg off at the shanks and, uh, and that, that lower joint and, uh, and don't take out that extra weight. Elk's a big animal. And uh, if you're packing one yourself, uh, if you've never done it, you'll be totally amazed at how heavy they are. <laughs> and, uh, and so learn to take your elk apart. Um, I've gotten to where anymore I'll, <clears throat> I'll just take and usually dorsal skin that elk and cut right down the backbone, peel the hide down on that side, and then you can take the shoulder off and the hind quarter off and the loins, and you can lay it right on that side of the, of the elk hide and not even get it dirty that way. And the cleaner you can keep it, the better it'll taste. So uh, get that off. Get it hung where the air can get all around it. If you're in an area where it's going to be warm and you got a bug problem, carry some lightweight uh, game bags that you can bag it in and uh, keep flies off it. And uh, then get it out as soon as you can and into a spot uh, where you're going to be able to you know, either hang it in a locker, of course. Uh, I like to age my elk for at least a week before I cut it up. And, uh, and, uh, but in some areas, say your backpack back in or horsed in or something like that on a spike camp, uh, I've seen uh, all kinds of ways to, to cool your meat off when it's warm. I've seen guys throw a quarter right in the stream and pull the heat out of it and then hang it in a shady spot in a game bag. And, uh, and that really can work. The first time I thought I saw a guy do that, I thought that was crazy. You know, you can't do that. And uh, the meat all turned white on the outside. And uh, but by golly, you cut in there an eighth of an inch, and it's red again. So it uh, it did work, and it was better than losing the meat. And so, yep, uh, myself, I'd rather keep it dry in the shade. And, and get it separated. I think those, and then do that as soon as you can. Uh, so you have to have some knowledge on how to do that, and there's lots of videos nowadays. You can YouTube that and uh, 
and it's not you know not that hard to learn anymore instead of the trial and error yeah so of all the elk you've killed what percentage have you pulled the guts out i mean obviously you hunt archery so it's usually it seems like nowadays it's really warm anytime you got an elk down for the most part at least in my experience what percentage of the animals do you pull the guts out um well anymore like i said i mainly dorsal skin them and just uh, peel the meat off and then I'll, the last thing i do is i'll just take and uh, my packs on open ribs up and pull the tenderloin and leave the guts right in it you know uh, but for years, I'd say of all the elk I've killed, and I've killed 38 now with my bow, and uh, I'd say out of those, um, probably 75%, I just uh, I gutted them like you would a, a deer, or you know, and just pulled, open it up, pull the chest uh, cavity open. Um, a big percentage of those have been bulls and. Uh, where I, you can only mount so many elk and, and have room for them in your house. And, uh, so, uh, so you got to be realistic about that. If you want to, uh, you can cape them out. You can save that cape, sell it to a taxidermist, uh, make a few extra bucks there, help pay for your gas. Uh, you can do that if you're in a spot where you want to pack that extra weight that long. Uh, and that far, you know, but uh, uh, if I'm not going to mount the elk and I'm not going to save that cape, it speeds up the whole process a bunch. And uh, so you can pull that hide off. Uh, you can gut them if you want. I've seen people gut elk and leave them uh, overnight, and some of them cool out okay and some of them don't. I think it's more important you get the hide off than anything that hide will really insulate your meat and uh and especially uh, i have had the opportunities where i've gutted them turned them over on their back and got a log or something underneath them to get an air circulation around them and it, it worked uh it worked pretty good and uh, but i if you've got uh if you've got the opportunity in the still i'd still say get the hide off separate them and hang them absolutely well i uh i'm 36 uh i, th I think i've killed 23 bulls and 90 percent of those were by myself and so i have lost elk meat one time and it was in 2012 and uh it was my mistake i tried to take a shortcut and figure out a way to get my four-wheeler and i messed around all day trying to figure out how to get there at the end of the day I couldn't get a four-wheeler there, so I had to end up starting all over and lost half the elk. So ever since that day, sure. I always take one half off exactly like you described, and then I usually, out of necessary, have to pull the guts out so I can flip the elk over by myself. But I think one of sure. the best practices is to, if you're not sure, just take the guts out however you need to. And then I'm on the same page with you. Like my dad and I built a meat locker at our cabin last summer and we love hanging our elk for seven to ten days at 40 degrees and we do our own butchering and you're absolutely right that is it's the taste is 10 times better when you let that animal age and I wish I'd learned that a long time ago but uh, like you said you're always learning 
And uh, a, a guy like you, I, this is pure gold to me, Mike, just listening to you drop so much knowledge. This is awesome. I know we don't have all day. So um, our mutual friend is Matt Bateman with Grim Reaper Broadheads. Um, I met you at one of the ATA shows many, many years ago. Uh, you were at the booth, and it's been a long time since I've seen you. But um, how did you get to know Matt? And tell us some kind of about your broadhead setup and how that's evolved and where it's at today. Matt, uh, I've known Matt since he was about three years old, and his father, his father and I, and uh, his father and mother were good friends of my wife and I, and uh, we would uh, we lived pretty close to him. Uh, went to the same church together, things like that, and just hit it off with friends, and then our kids grew up together. Um, Matt was uh, the same age as my son, uh, Jake, and uh, and unfortunately, uh, Jake was killed in a car wreck when he was 19, and, uh, and after that, uh, Matt kind of had been out of my... Uh, uh, you know, life is somewhat for a, a few years there. In the meantime, Matt had gotten a passion for bow hunting, and so he came up, and uh, and we actually came up, and uh, he went fishing with me, and uh, then we decided to do an elk hunt, and uh, I'm not sure if Matt had shot an elk before that, but so I don't think so. Anyway, I called in his first elk for him, and it about ran over him. He ended up shooting it just steps away and uh, made a real good shot. And uh, and Matt has a passion for bow hunting that uh, uh, I guess we were kindred spirits that way. And, uh, and so I just kind of shared what I know with Matt and uh, and then he had uh, he had the talent to go ahead and take whatever I could share and then uh, assimilate it into his own hunting and uh, and he's just he to me Matt is one of the best bow hunters out there that uh, is he's known by local people but I think that's about it uh, you know some some nationally, I suppose, because of the industry and what have you. But uh, so we became fast friends, and uh, not just because of his dad and mom, uh, but because we shared that same passion uh, for the hunt. And also, I think uh, there are some people just like uh, every other sport that are gifted in it. And Matt's got a gift, and uh, and I think I've been blessed with those same gifts, and uh, so uh, we really hit it off. And um, Matt, a lot of the time is uh, is probably one of the easiest people that I can hunt with because we think the same, and uh, and so we work really good as a team, and. Uh, until I screwed it up a couple of years ago in Wyoming, we were a hundred percent on our elk hunt every year, and uh, so uh, and so he gives me a hard time for that. And uh, but <laughs> he, uh, you know, Matt has evolved, and um, and of course he's uh, he's 
he basically is a lot of the life blood of Grim Reaper Broadheads, and uh, he introduced me into uh, shooting uh, an expandable broadhead, which, uh, quite honestly, I dug my feet in a little bit on that, and uh, and he had to prove to me that they worked uh, would do as well as a fixed uh, broadhead would, and a fixed blade broadhead. Um, I uh, I'm a little bit old school in the in the sense that uh, there are still a part of me that wants to have that blade out there. Uh, that being said, I've killed lots of animals with uh, expandables uh, that did a just a fine job. And uh, in fact, I shot an elk with Matt. Uh, the first one I shot with an expandable. A Grim Reaper, and uh, it. Uh, I shot a bullet 47 yards, and he ran 63 yards because we range finded it, and uh, and we got to watch him drop, which is of course Grim Reaper's, you know, uh, motto there, and uh, and and I really did, and uh, I was amazed because I was only shooting 67 pounds and uh, a heavy arrow. But my arrow went through that bull, uh, oh, maybe 30, 40 yards, and uh, was stuck in the ground. And the bull, from where I shot it to my arrow, was further away than what the bull made it. And uh, so I, it definitely gave me confidence that they would work. And uh, I don't think all broadheads are created equal. I know there's a lot of good ones out there, so you have to pick those ones that work and and not just the hype, and uh, talk to people, find out which ones work for them, uh, try and get something that uh, people have used and uh, and are solid. That being said, my bull last year I shot with uh, the uh, Grim Reaper fixed blade, the Hades four blade, and, uh, and it did just fine on them. And I know they're in Idaho and in other states, you can't use expansibles. So, uh, you know, check your eggs, get the ones that fly good for you. They're good and the blades are going to stay in them and are sharp. Uh, it's so important that you brought in sharp and can make all the difference in the recovery or not. So I, uh, I still, uh, not with Matt, he swears up and down. He's going to be with me when I kill my 40th elk. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't doubt that he will be, and uh, I hope I do that. Uh, it's not a numbers game so much as it's just that's where it ended up. And uh, so it's been good, and if my health holds out, there's a real good chance I'll be able to make that. Oh, man, that's so awesome. Yeah, I used that uh, four-blade from that Micro Hades this year for the first time as well. Um, very impressed. Probably the sharpest broadheads I've ever handled. No joke. Uh, just I cut my finger just taking him out of the package. That's never happened before. And I love Matt. He is so humble. And if people don't know about him, they should look him up. He's definitely one of the most talented bow hunters, and he's really humble about it. You would you have to almost pry it out of him, but he has really put some amazing animals down, and he's very clutch. He's got ice in his veins, which is. You know, a pretty good trait if you're a bow hunter, so that's awesome. Mike, I got one last question for you, and 
we'll end it here. This is called Elk Shape. Everybody knows I'm a fitness junkie and I pride myself on being in as best shape as possible year round. What's a guy like you who's been hunting for 40 plus years, what do you do to be ready for elk season when it gets here physically? Well, I think the most important thing uh, is you never stop. I think that it's, uh, to be in shape for the mountains, you've got to hike the mountains. Uh, there are things you can do, obviously, uh, and you would understand that in your training uh, that can help uh, what you do. But I, I'm, a, I'm really dedicated to what I eat, and, uh, and I think that uh, uh, your body is going to wear out at one time or another, no matter what you do. But I still get around the the mountains pretty good, and I still hike around out there with a about a thirty pound pack all bow hunting season, and uh, and uh, I do what I my body tells me. I learn to listen to it. Uh, I don't, you know, uh, I never smoked or drank or did the things that I feel like uh, will limit what you can do. Uh, I'd rather be out there hunting than I would be having a good time at the bar or something like that, uh, I guess. So, it, yeah, and so, you know, you eat well. Uh, you don't listen to the fact that if you're older, you can't do it because I don't believe that. Uh, sometimes you got to do it a little slower, a little wiser, uh, and and you just you just don't quit. I think that when you quit, uh, you know, if you think you can, you can stop for six months out of the year and then try and pick it up uh, and and go hard for you know the season or something like that. You're fooling yourself, and uh, so you take care of your body; it'll take care of you. Awesome. We'll end right there, Mike. Thanks for coming on today and dropping knowledge. This is like my favorite podcast I've done yet. Uh, I'm going to hang up here on the recorder, but not on you. We'll talk offline. Stand by. And, um, any last things you got to say, Mike? Uh, just get out there and enjoy it. It's, it's there. I'd say uh, one guy told me one time, he says, there's always room at the top. So go do your best. <laughs> I love it. That's pure gold. Awesome, Mike.